So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, February the 3rd, and this is Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers, episode number 194. I'm Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I want to thank you for being with me here today, and things are going bad outside. It is 8 degrees Fahrenheit right now, and the wind gust picked up to 21 miles per hour. So that combination makes it really really rough outside truth be known i hope you enjoy the opening sequence because on these frozen days guess what i'm doing collecting bees from the snow so those that fly out doing cleansing flights that don't make it back to their hives i just pick them up and i bring them in put them under the microscope and i'm getting details that i'm going to use in later presentations because when i give presentations in per in person um I like to show things that maybe I haven't shown on my channel. So that's what I'm trying to do is build it up because I have some speaking engagements coming up. So if that's one of you who's watching, who had the confidence and wanted to get me in to talk to your bee club or your state association conference, thank you for having me. I'm trying to bring new things in there. So if you want to know what we're going to talk about today, please look down in the video description and all of those topics will be in order. Also, there will be some links if there's additional information to know about, or maybe so you can source some of the products that we talk about, things like that. Uh, everything we're going to talk about today was submitted over the past week. So we're going to start right off with Bob from Galloway, New Jersey. It says, Fred, as a new beekeeper wanting to buy hives, I'm wondering how many supers I need to buy. I want to use mediums over one eight frame deep, Due to medical issues. Thanks so much in advance and so on. Okay, so a lot of you that are thinking about starting with bees this year are ordering your equipment now, and you should be, because equipment can't go out of stock. I just got a box today from Better Bee, some hive equipment that I hope to evaluate this spring. And uh, oftentimes, uh, when you look at the stuff you've ordered, back ordered, Super frustrating. And I noticed that on my order too, it said back order, but that's because I got the last one. So you want to be the early bird if you're thinking about hive equipment, especially for those of you who've ordered packages for spring. So if you've got packages coming in, you better be set up and ready to go with your hive equipment. Now, the question is related to how many boxes do you need? And this also ties in. There's another question today about that. And uh, you're going to see the standard complete kits generally have a deep box, sometimes two deeps and two mediums. That's pretty much all a beginner would use in the first couple of years. And you'll often hear people say, that, ah, you won't need that your first year of beekeeping because you're just getting started. You're just putting that swarm in there or you're packaging that uh, package. You're hiving the package or uh, you're bringing in a nucleus colony. So... Of those three things, the nucleus would be the one that would build up the fastest in spring, so you need to be ready to accommodate them. But the reference here, too, about health issues. Don't want uh, the big boxes, so going down to an ape frame. I'd like to throw a monkey wrench in there on that one for some of you. Now, if you're planning to keep it small and you want to be able to lift the boxes, but you'd like to be able to keep them uh, manageable, right? But deep frames, let's say. What would you use? Hmm, what would I do? What about nucleus hive boxes that the bodies are made out of wood? So these aren't the ones that are 
used for shipping that are lightweight and things like that, core flute and plastic. There are a lot of intermediate containers for a nucleus colony of bees, usually three to five frames, and uh, but they're just designed to get them through shipping. But what if you wanted to keep them in that? What if you didn't want to take them out of that five frame nuke box at all? Could you do it? I think you could. <clears throat> and that's because over the past few years, and I was late to doing this, by the way, I didn't use nucleus boxes for starting my swarms and things like that. And I'm not talking Bob out of getting the standard hive boxes. I'm just offering alternatives. So the five frame nucleus boxes that I've started stacking. So now I've gone to three boxes. So that's 15 deep frames. And they're manageable because there's only five frames. So even if they're full of honey, which would be the heaviest they would be, you can still manage to lift that. And I limit it to three high, um, and that's 15 deep frames. So that's not a giant colony of bees. And it will lead me into another discussion later on this morning. But um, you can manage those, and they can stay in those year-round. And if you're wondering what that configuration would look like, what if we wanted to keep bees in our nucleus hives year-round? Well, you can go to my website, thewaytobee.org, and look at the prints page. And there are prints, drawings that show exactly what I'm talking about when it comes to the nucleus hive. So not using it for a temporary resource, but rather using it as your beehive. Now, if it's not... Uh, big enough and your colony of bees builds up too fast and let's say you fill those three boxes what's going to happen well this is why i use them as resource hives so if you want to split them or help somebody else get started with a colony of bees once they fill up you can do walk away splits with them if it looks like they're building queen cells you can go ahead and take your existing queen and her frame with some brood and uh, help somebody else get started with bees and keep the numbers down and the size of the colony down and then somebody may say well with a colony that small, could they get through winter? Look what it's doing right now. Eight degrees Fahrenheit, heavy winds. And this hasn't really been a terrible winter overall, but there have not been a lot of cleansing flight days. So we've had snowless periods, but uh, not necessarily a break in the temperatures. So the bees are doing okay, even in nucleus hives. And the only insulation that we've put on there, because remember, I like to do insulation in increments. So in other words, we start with an insulated inner cover, we start with an insulated cap after that, and then if the tendency is for them not to do well going through winter, then we'll think about adding more insulation or wrapping the hive or something like that. But if I did that all at once, I wouldn't know at what point uh, they were still doing fine even without wrapping or insulating the entire hive. So that's what we're doing right now. Last winter, these nucleus hives and here's the kicker, and I know I've mentioned it before, but I'm going to say it again. I don't feed them. So the, the top box, which is five deep frames, is almost always fully capped with honey. Um, well, you know, second week of September. So they're ready to go, and if things turn bad, the colony is smaller, so their demands are lower. So therefore, they get through winter uh, with fewer resources. So I don't feed them. There's no hive alive fondant packs on my nucleus hives. So the nucleus colonies are coming through and we only have three of them this year. And they're in different positions right now. Two of them are side by side and another one is spread out. And 
in 2023. So this year, we're going to be adding a lot more resource hives. I have them all out in my bee building, ready to go. And I'll use those to hive uh, spring swarms. I'll use them to divide my colonies that start building up very soon that would otherwise become supersized colonies. Uh, I'm going to use nucleus-sized hives more and more as resources. And of course, you can sell them or give them away to your friends and people that want to get started with bees. But uh, you could keep them, I think, also as a standard hive. But when it comes to um, the kits and how many supers should you have, talk to the other beekeepers. I know this is something that people say all the time. Talk to other beekeepers where you live that are very successful, that are doing well with their bees. And I don't mean the beekeepers that boost their bees all the time, trying to get bigger colonies, larger resources out of them, right? Uh, so if we're leaving the bees as much as possible to themselves, we end up with smaller colonies overall, and therefore we don't have to have, you know, a huge stack of boxes. So a standard kit would be two deeps, two mediums, or one deep and three mediums. And uh, you may never need to have a colony that size, especially if you're just letting them do their own thing and you're not really trying to boost them with sugar syrup and things like that. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm saying let your bees starve and die. I'm not saying that because part of this too is the ability to assess a colony of bees, look at their overall health and well-being and how well they're storing resources that they need, pollen, which is the protein, and then of course uh, the resources as far as capped honey goes. So if they seem sized right for the resources that they've stored up, and here the sweet spot for me is about 47 pounds of honey. That gets them through winter with a surplus. So, and we added insulated inner covers last year. Before that, I had insulated feeder shims, but the insulated inner covers, which by the way are by Be Smart Designs, they're sold through a bunch of different companies. But um, that increased the numbers of bees in the colonies coming into spring, reduced the resources that they needed as far as their honey consumption went. Uh, they also weren't using their emergency resources. So what do I mean by that? Well, those are resources, emergency feed that goes on top of the insulated inner cover. And uh, you can put fondant packs on, which is what I've gone to this year exclusively for those that I thought would need it. That's key because the ones that I was 99.9% .9 sure would not need any supplemental feed that were full of resources None of my horizontal hives, including the Long Langstroth and the Layens hives, none of them have emergency feed rations on top of the frames. And based on the thermals that I got on the Langstroth, because it's the one that I could still read thermals on, the Layens hives are too insulated. Uh, the colonies are still alive uh, and they have a sizable thermal image when we look at the surface, which means that they're still occupying several frames in there. So what we increased on those is the top insulation. Now, that's why it's not really a clear answer how many supers I need to buy. What do you want to do with your bees? So if you're planning to keep your bees uh, to get honey, some people want to turn it into a sideliner. And let's face it, honey's expensive. Honey's worth a lot. Uh, here in my state, a quart of honey would be worth about $22. We sell them for $20 because we just keep it even Stephen. But you should also be charging a deposit for your jars, hoping that people give them back someday. 
But uh, so if you're going to sell honey, for example, then you want to be able to generate a surplus while leaving yourself enough or your bees enough to get them through winter. So I let them set up that resource first. So what happens here, state of Pennsylvania, where it's cold? Uh, we still get four, four really distinctive seasons. We have a clear spring, summer, fall, and so on. And uh, so what happens is I let them build up in spring. We pull off leftover honey in spring also. Now, is that as good as taking off the honey while it's fresh? No, it's not. For some reason, the spring honey that's left on the hives when I take it off, and if we extract that, uh, it's okay. But what were we getting at the end of the year? We were getting goldenrod and uh, asters, for example, which creates kind of a strong honey, and it's prone to crystallization. A good example of that in this jar right here, crystallized late-season honey, which some people don't mind. They like it. But then look at this jar, nothing has crystallized, and look how dark that is, and it's the same age. So depending on the source and the time of year that you take it, uh, it'll have a longer shelf life without setting. There's nothing wrong with honey that's crystallized. But if you're trying to get a sideline going, then as your bee numbers start to pick up, you're going to continue to super them. So you want to keep up with the nectar flow and keep up with the expansion inside the hive and when you add each super you wait to see if that starts to fill up but then it's kind of a teeter-totter effect because if where you live there's a summer dearth let's say July is hot and dry then they're going to be consuming some of those resources as well because remember bees are actively burning calories when they're cooling the hive just as they are in the winter time when they're warming their brood so they keep their hive cool because they don't want their own honey to melt out of the frames that they've got stored in there. So they're keeping the honey resources also climate controlled and the brood, which is critical. So your bees are burning calories to do the work that they need to do. And it surprises some people because they're really thinking, man, you know, I'm getting ready for winter. All these stores and resources are for winter time, but they're really not. They're burning resources anytime they're expending energy to do activities and so cooling takes a lot of energy. That's also why I'm surprised sometimes when people set up a hive configuration, whatever your choice is, however much insulation you use, some people wrap insulation on their hives, um, cover the whole thing. And then when spring comes and it warms up, they pull it all off. And I'm thinking, why would you pull it all off? If uh, it keeps them warm, it also keeps them cool because it created a barrier from things being too hot outside or, you know, it just helps the bees control their climate on their own better if you're using a bunch of insulation. So I think if you've spent the money and time and energy to put it on, maybe you want to leave it on. But um, when it comes time to expand and contract your hives, add supers, remove supers. Some people rotate boxes. I don't. But um, then that outside insulation, if it's a wrap of some kind, is in your, in your way. Plus, you have to store it somewhere. So if you want to wait until that brood box starts to fill up in spring and then they start to store honey and you put a medium super on there, then uh, you wait to see if they fill that up. And of course, the numbers are expanding and then you keep adding boxes. But where I live, I've never had to add more than four supers. Something, again, that I don't do so much anymore 
because uh, we allow the bees to consume their resources. So there's that teeter-totter effect I mentioned earlier. They build it up and they consume it. They build it up and they consume it. And at the same time, the brood is building. The drones are building up as well. And uh, if we take what happens in nature as a model for how big the colony is going to get on its own, then uh, it's kind of limited by the space that they've chosen to occupy again when they're left to themselves to choose it. So Dr. Seeley came up with the 10-gallon space inside a tree. And uh, so once the bees occupy that size space, then what would they do with all their surplus honey? What happens when they build up a lot of honey and they store a lot of resources, plus they need room for the brood? Well, they do what they're biologically designed to do which is they build up their numbers, they build up their resources, they send out their queen, and they produce new replacement queens, and they have a new colony. So that keeps the colony smaller. And the problems that smaller colonies face when they have their natural reproduction like that, the problems that they face are fewer than the supersized colonies that we, by expanding the cavity constantly, and keeping the queen there and causing them to build these super colonies, which I used to get really excited about. It was almost like a, a show of uh, success. Look at the stacks of boxes on that beehive. And then that was the hive that was so productive. The colony was so big that uh, I would think, yeah, I'm going to keep them through winter. And those are the ones that I'm going to do splits from in spring. But guess what? I almost always lost the largest colony in the apiary. Strongest going into spring, but see, there are other issues with that. One means that they didn't swarm. I did a video where that colony was about to swarm late September, early October. They were massing on the front of the colony. The bees were in the air. They were staring at the landing board, waiting for the queen to come out. And then I created a synthetic uh, rainstorm, which worked because that warm day, they could have flown out as a swarm, but by artificially creating a rainstorm and sprinkling them with the hose, the face of the hive, then uh, I shut down their pheromones in the air that way. I got the ones that were hovering in front to go back inside. And uh, then nightfall came, temperatures dropped, and it never got warm again like that. So what they did was they turned on the queen cells that were inside, they chewed them out themselves, the resident queen stayed, and the colony stayed. So I fought nature, and then that colony um, was not successful going through winter. And there are a lot of reasons for that that have changed now. I was not insulating the top. I was venting through the top back then. Still had condensation issues, by the way, uh, with a large colony like that. And then they had too much honey on, which meant there was surplus honey inside the hive too many frames for them to manage, too many boxes for them to manage. And then so we had all of this uh, comb inside the hive that got cold or warm, depending on what the weather was doing outside. And so then, of course, when it was cold, it acted like a, a cold battery. It stored that cold temperature in the honey because the cluster was way down below going into winter. And then we get those hot days, uh, condensation formed on the surface of the honey, and the cluster was not on the honey, and therefore it didn't protect it from condensation. So then that water trickled down the frames onto the cluster and kept them wet and cold and incapable of recovering eventually, because on those warm days, what happens right after that? Nightfall comes, temperatures drop again, 
and the bees are back in cluster and uh, the cycle just kept repeating. So I found that the smaller colonies, smaller hives, which for me is either a deep and a medium or a deep and two mediums or a double deep, nothing bigger than that. And that was only because the reason I had a double deep is because I combined uh, two colonies because one was queenless and it was being robbed. So I combined the queenless colony with the queen right colony and just put newsprint between them. So now I had a double deep. I don't intentionally set up double deeps because I like to super with mediums. But so there's no straight answer, but I would say buy the kit and uh, get whatever boxes they give you and then see what the rhythm is where you are and for the backyard beekeepers, the enthusiasts that just are interested in bees and want to see how things go, maybe get some honey off of them, but it's not the focal point. Uh, there's no reason building them up into these super colonies. So that's also why I don't give them pollen substitute. Uh, well, I give pollen substitute out in the environment for a couple of weeks in the spring, but I don't feed pollen patties. I don't feed uh, protein patties and things like that that are designed to boost the numbers. Instead, I wait to see how these bees fly out and get their resources on their own. And then they bring them in and the colony rises and falls on its own. And you'll find out that they do kind of stay to um, a manageable colony of bees. There's some other things to think about when you're thinking about the size of the colony that you want to have. Uh, the bigger colonies tend to be more aggressive towards other colonies. Uh, in some instances, they tend to be more defensive because they have a lot more guards on deck than some of the other colonies do. So these are the colonies that can send out a really sizable swarm, by the way, if they do swarm, because now you've got one of those 40,000 bee colonies or larger. So, and those are artificially stimulated. And by that, I mean somebody kept feeding them sugar syrup or kept making resources available above and beyond what the environment was providing. And I know the argument that, um, well, you can put sugar syrup on and it can be on all the time and you don't have to worry about that tainting your honey. Now this is what other people are saying uh, because when nectar is available in the environment, they ignore the sugar syrup that you've put inside your hive. So it's not that big of a deal. Where my take on it is once they've survived winter, which is the key, that's when all supplemental feeding comes off. And so then, and by supplemental feeding, I mean the emergency rations that are on there for wintertime are just hive life fondant this year. In the past, it would have been uh, dry sugar up in the rapid round. And uh, that was pretty much it. I did try Pro Sweet uh, because it has the consistency of honey. It's very thick. But the problem I had with that was uh, it would drip down on the colony. In fact, I started it on a small colony, a late season swarm, and it, it just started leaking down into the uh, hive of bees and they couldn't keep up with it. So not doing that anymore. No liquids in feeders that could express the syrup down into the hive. The other thing is, uh, the way I set up the feed now, if you are putting syrup on top of a hive, uh, I don't put it dead center. So like my observation hives, for example, the feed is set over. So if this is the face of the side of an observation hive, you know, historically people put the feeder directly over the top. 
Some people have one that fits in on the edge at the bottom, which is probably a good idea if it's an observation hive and it's in your house. But when those upside down jars are on top of the feeder, dead center, they leak when things warm up and that little pocket of air up there expands and pushes it down whether your bees want it or not. It's kind of like force feeding them because now they have to deal with sugar syrup that's coming down on them. So ProSweet for me didn't work well because when that pushed out, these heavy syrups glom onto the bodies of your bees. They're forced to groom it off of each other. And if it's cold at all, um, below 50 degrees, it's uh, very hard for your bees and it's going to kill some of them. Not to mention if that trickles over the surface of brood, those heavy syrups are also going to kill your bees. So keep in mind that when, we, when the bees store their honey for wintertime, it's in cells that are angled at 13 degrees and they're capped and they're only used when the cluster is over the top of them and they chew it open and they access that honey as needed. Not only that, they warm it before they access it. When the jar is up above, they can't warm the jar up there. And I know the other part of that discussion is that, well, they'll be up against the surface of it from underneath and that cluster of bees that's feeding on it will warm that area so we've got a jar that's cold, but the area that they're feeding from would be warm, and then they would consume that, and then they migrate that down for the others. Okay, if you use that method, then don't center the jar, put it off to one of the edges. So in the observation hives that I've designed, they go on the outside edges. No uh, syrup would be fed through the center. And you can greatly reduce uh, the syrup if you're using something like ProSweet in the cold times of the year, which again, I'm not supporting, but if you did it, you want to keep uh, your jars full. Because by the time it got to the half full level, it accelerated out of that with or without bees. So be very careful about feeding with the intention of just expanding the numbers. Now, it doesn't mean that you let your bees die out in a dearth period. But here again, if we create a monster colony on our own, and so we also create this exaggerated demand for resources, and then if those resources disappear from the environment, you're either feeding them enough to keep them all alive, or you're letting them starve out on their own, where if we had never boosted that colony, and they're locally adapted bees then they already know when the dearth is coming and guess what the queen does? She starts to back off on her leg laying, egg laying. And she backs off on egg laying just as she would if winter were coming because resources are not actively coming in from the environment through the entrance. So we end up with a smaller colony of bees. And then as those resources pick up again later on in the year uh, and you get that late summer bloom cycle and things like that, you'll see the numbers of bees pick up again. So they expand and shrink their brood area based on what the cues are in the environment. However, if you're continually feeding them supplements and boosting the colony, trying to keep their numbers up so you get this big yield of honey at the end of the year or you get a giant cluster of bees, then that's kind of artificially inflating your colony. I'm not saying that you can't do that. I'm saying that if you do, be prepared to sustain them with food and resources so that those numbers don't drop again. And so I've been thinking about sizes of colonies a lot over the years. And uh, also there's everybody sends me emails, everybody, a lot of people. 
send emails as soon as an article or some publication comes out. And the most recent one uh, this year was about sunflowers and how they might have a negative impact on the Varroa destructor mite. So, um, because I only use one method of control for the Varroa destructor mite, and that is, other than integrated pest management, there are little bits and pieces that eat away at the Varroa destructor mite's ability to reproduce, ability to exist in the hive, and can boost your bees' ability to fight them. So, the more brood you have, the larger the colony you have, uh, the more mite production you have. So once again, the smaller colonies seem to do better, but now they kind of throw a monkey wrench in there when they start talking about the pollen on sunflowers because I plant acres of sunflowers every year and have for a long time. So now I have to wonder, is it my Varroa management? Is it the kind of bees that I'm keeping? Or is it now a combination of the type of bees I keep and what the environment is bringing in through diet? So the bees are getting pollen from these sunflowers through a big part of the summer. And if that's suppressing not only Varroa destructor mites, I knew in the past that it was also acting on um, even fowl brood, for example. So, but then also we let them bring in and build up propolis inside the hive. So now this starts to become a multi-tiered impact on your bees, which expands their immune system, which uh, allows the bees to focus more energy on bringing in resources for the hive. Do you understand this is so complicated? But to narrow it down and filter it down to uh, what I've decided to do with my own bees and my own apiary is to keep them small and uh, to have just the deep and a couple of mediums. And when they build up and if they're going to swarm, by the way, which sometimes they do without filling it all with honey, and then they get a new queen and we have a brood break and all of these things, all of these things combine to reduce the presence of the Varroa destructor mite, which means the spinoff of that is the virus load that they carry is also less effective on your bees because again we have the pollen coming in from stuff that apparently is proven to help fight that we also have a propolis envelope which uh, gets built up in there over the years that's why the newest bee equipment it seems like it would be the healthiest but it's actually not it's the older equipment that has lots of propolis all over it um, inner covers that i have that are just covered in propolis like here's just an example. This is all propolis. It's, I mean, they've covered it. So through the years and people see something, an inner, you know, an inner cover like that, and they go, well, we have to get rid of that and get a new one in there. But you don't. If it functions and it works well, the thing that you want all over it is propolis. So this older equipment that your bees are constantly putting these thin layers, they're reworking it and smoothing it over with propolis every year. And sometimes throughout the year, of course, when it gets really cold, they can't do it. But so all of these things can contribute to the health and well-being of your colony. So the size of your colony, this is what I'm gonna say, is the smaller colonies are healthier overall. And the bigger colonies need more help, food resource-wise and everything else. And you need to pay much closer attention to moisture management in winter time. 
when you have these large colonies of bees. The smaller colonies uh, don't have those problems because the cluster is already near the inner cover with a single deep and a medium box. And then uh, the insulated inner cover is right there and it created this warm pocket. And so through the gears, I eliminated top venting, no top entrances. So, and there are a lot of people that uh, want to go the other way and have a top vent and a top entrance and a bottom entrance. And my question is, if you're trying to figure out what the bees want themselves. Now, I did this with my feeder shims that I built, which are big and heavy. They had an integrated bottom board and everything else. Somebody brought up, oh, you need to give your bees the option so that you could, because it's a big cavity, you could be turning that into a quilt box or something, or you could have insulation up there. And, uh, but they need vents is what everybody wanted to say. And I say everybody, a lot of people. So I put screens in there. I made vents. I let the bees decide though. So I put up screens like this number eight stainless steel cloth. What do you think happened when you do that and let the bees have access to that throughout the year? They seal it up with propolis. None of my hives wanted top venting. So I stopped doing that single vents. Also, this is, I'm explaining my process and how I arrived at where I am uh, with my bees. I also let them swarm, which for a lot of people is not an option. Uh, I live out in the countryside, according to beescape.org, which is a place that you log into to find out what kind of habitat there is for feral colonies of bees and things like that. So where I live, uh, the few swarms that scoot out, uh, I usually catch them. By the way, I'm very good at that, finding them, because my apiary is only 85 to 100 feet from where I'm sitting right now. Um, I'm very good at finding and collecting the swarms and getting them in another hive and helping somebody else out with them to get started with bees, for example. Um, but we're on to them. So it's not that big of a deal. Now, if you live in the city, you have other issues. You have to be aware of your bees. You have to, you can't just let them swarm out. And, but you could cycle through your queens. So you could remove a queen instead of letting her swarm. Uh, before the bees are even ready, keep your colony small. You see a number of uh, brood frames in there. You see eggs and open larvae and uh, everything's looking good in there, but you're concerned that they're going to swarm and you, you want to keep control of them. But you also have limitations and you don't want to lift a bunch of boxes. So you want to keep your colony small. Then you would be eliminating your queen. And this is something that it's management. This is livestock, right? So this again is where the nucleus resource hives come into play. You pull the queen, you want an insurance policy. If you've only got a couple of beehives, you don't want to end up uh, queenless through both hives. So having a nucleus box, moving your queen with a couple of frames in there into the nucleus box as an insurance policy while they produce another queen does a number of things. Breaks the brood, interrupts varroa mite reproduction. Uh, causes them to produce another queen, removes a stimulus for swarming. So now they're queenless all of a sudden. They didn't plan for it. This isn't like you looking through your hive and finding out that they're starting to build queen cells and they're already making preparations to replace their queen. This is you pulling a healthy queen from a colony in order to get them to produce another queen. And this provides a longer brood break. 
when they're making those preparations on their own and there are already queen cells and then you're capping them and that's when you remove the existing queen, it's not very far after that that they're going to have the replacement queens coming out and then they're going to fly out, mate, come back, and they're back in business. When you remove your queen, you can time it. So you can plan it for a period when they're going to have plenty of resources so that the replacement queens will be healthy because we want lots of environmental resources coming into the hive. We don't want that to be from pollen patties. Even the best pollen patties made will not be better than what's out there in the environment for your bees. So you do that at a time of plenty and then you let them produce healthy queens and then they'll go out mate and come back. You've controlled your uh, size of the colony, you've got a reduction in the workforce in the colony, and you've held back their need for additional space because now they're going to start over again. And from the time that new queen starts laying again, you're, in a, you're a month out. So that's a means of control, keeping your colony small, and also they keep the resources that they've had because the foragers continue to bring in nectar and store honey and things like that. And because it's a smaller cluster, their demand for those resources is also reduced. So this is a way to keep colonies smaller, and it doesn't mean that they can't survive a cold winter because mine do it year after year. Meanwhile, I have friends with hundreds of hives that for the last two winters in a row lost more than 80% of their hives. These are production hives, and it's to, to earn money from the bees. And I don't know all of the practices that they do, but for the backyard beekeeping, uh, keeping colonies smaller, healthier, letting them rotate out with new queens and things like that, seems to be a really good recipe for the backyard beekeeper. So, there's <laughs> that was a long answer for Bob's question, but I really wanted to kind of thoroughly go around uh, how he ended up doing what I do right now. So that's how to keep small, healthy colonies and uh, keep things under control and not have to lift a whole bunch of boxes and reach up high. And a lot of people that start beekeeping are older and uh, retired and really want an easier way to manage bees. For those people, I say, consider horizontal hives. Then you're only lifting frames. Question number two. Let's see, <clears throat> just as podcast questions. I have a question for you this week's podcast. I live in Metro Newark, New Jersey, zone six. We've been having an overall mild winter and on Monday, January the 30th, it was a 55 plus degree day. I had several hives bringing in pollen. Of course, today is 25 degrees. I'm concerned that there's still a lot of winter to come and that an early buildup won't be awesome when and if the temperatures plummet. I have insulated inner covers and outer covers plus hive live fondant on each hive as emergency feed. Any thoughts or strategies at this stage of the game in addition to prayer? <clears throat> well, prayer is never wasted. But if they're already bringing in pollen, this is what they do. If they're foraging and it gets warm and there's pollen available in the, in the environment, they're going to return to that pollen source every chance they get. And uh, this is another thing. Um, I mentioned earlier that sometimes I put out pollen substitute and there's only 
a week or two where my bees even care about that. This year I'm doing a comparison between a couple of different pollen subs to see what the bees kind of go after. But I think when they're bringing in the resources on their own, even if they kick off just a little bit of brood from that, that's their insurance policy. So we need to know kind of what their honey stores are, but you've also got the Hive Alive fondant on there, which by the way, I highly recommend as an emergency. And uh, let them build a little brood. Let them match what the environment is providing. I know we get these cold spells just like we're having right now. It's going to be 49 degrees or something tomorrow. So we're going from single digits. Look at the incline of temperature. And so if they're finding little bits and pieces of pollen, they're going to be okay on their own. So it depends again on what your goals are with them. And, uh, I think you're going to be okay. I don't think there's any reason to jump the gun. We've provided emergency resources. The hive alive is on there. They're going to live. They won't starve to death. But the brood, this is my opinion. This is just the way I look at my bees. Because it's always remarkable to see when they start bringing in pollen resources. That's when we get excited. But that's just a, a starting point for them. When things really kick in in a meaningful way later on. For us, it's when the dandelions bloom, but we get uh, pollen from a lot of different sources much earlier than that from trees. And this is why it's exciting to watch the landing board, see what they're bringing in, see what's going on, see the rate of pollen coming in. It takes a full frame of pollen, face frame, to create a full frame of brood. So I think they're just going to trickle in and start slow, and I don't see personally anything wrong with letting them start up slow and then they'll feed that pollen to get those bees going to get those uh, new larvae going and they only need pollen for the first eight days of development <clears throat> so they're an egg for three days and then after that egg hatches that's when they're going to start feeding the larvae and then by the ninth day they're capped so and then once they're in the pupa state they don't need feed anymore. So it gives them a chance to utilize the pollen that they're bringing in. And then when they get another weather break, they'll start that again. And once the foragers, as I said, know the source of it, they're gonna beeline it back there, pun intended. And they're gonna find that stuff. So let's move on to number three. I think they're fine and I wouldn't try to add anything to that. I wouldn't try to feed them pollen patties and things like that, backyard beekeeping let them match what's going on in the environment and learn from that keep notes dates on your calendars things like that what they do year by year this comes from keith in st louis missouri i understand you're working on a hyssop growing video that will likely come out later but i'm interested in knowing more about your current experimentation before it gets too late to play around with this in the interim, and it says, what light sources are you trying out? Do you anticipate being able to keep the early seedlings going until you can plant outdoors in spring? Well, that's the key. So I've been fooling around <clears throat> with plants. And the reason, I know that sometimes people do a video and they'll say, this is what I'm starting to do. This is what I'm using. And then they'll set up their seed starters and things like that. But I like to do the whole thing. And uh, so that takes months to do. And then as mentioned by Keith, by the time I put it out, what happens? It's too late for others to do the same thing. 
So I do these videos that are self-contained, start to finish, which is cool when you're watching the video, not cool if you're looking for something to do right now. So today's shout out, and that's one of the things it's gonna lead me to. First, I'll talk about the hyssop that I'm growing, and I'll give you a close look at this packet. <clears throat> this is Agastachi. Anise hyssop, Agastachi funiculum. And this is good for hardiness zones three through eight. So it's perfect where I live. I just started with hyssop last year. And uh, I will put links down in the video description to the lighting that I'm using because I like these light wands. They're very inexpensive. They have three power settings and they have clocks built into them. And I thought that when you click on the timer on it where it says 12 hour timer, which is where they are right now, I thought that meant they run for 12 hours and it shuts off. And then of course the next day you come and you turn it on, it runs for 12 hours. No, these are on a 12 hour cycle. These lights are in shift work right now, 12 on, 12 off. So they're really good and I like them. And I started my uh, hyssop seed in Ziploc baggies uh, with just damp paper towels and I put the seed on the damp paper towels and I put them seed face down and I put them in the windowsill and uh, like nine out of ten germinated and then I transferred them into my little starter pods. So I will put links because I've used the starter system that I have now in the past. What's new this year is the lighting that I'm using. And I have it on a grow rack and I also run a fan during the day for about 10 hours. Because I found that, here's your seedlings, here's a fan about a foot above them. When it blows air across them, I used to think when I saw that, wow, they must be just keeping CO2 going or something for their plants. I didn't realize that the breeze that was blowing lightly across those plants was creating stronger plants because they're having to fight the wind a little bit. And it's true, they're thicker, their leaves are better. But um, my shout out today is for this website, which is called wildflowerfarm.com. And that's where I got these seeds. Um, the germination rate of these seeds is really high. They also have a YouTube channel. And I thought I would link that, but they haven't posted a video for six or seven years. And so I thought, ah, oh, leading you back to a six or seven year old video, maybe you'd watch it, maybe you wouldn't. But I definitely will give the shout out for this, uh, <clears throat> for their website because they're growing native plants and they have a lot of good information there. And this is seed packed for 2023. So nice fresh seed. And this little packet looks like nothing. Hundreds of plants you'll get from this. So to answer Keith's question, I will give the links down below. I don't feel like I should really put the video out yet because what if I did everything wrong halfway through it? Oh yeah, because that's the other part of the question. <clears throat> Do I anticipate being able to keep the early seedlings going until I plant outdoors in spring? Well, I started them way too early because I was testing to see how they went and then I thought, ah, I'll just toss them and then uh, start over again just in time so that I can move them outside. But I have 80 plants doing well. I don't feel like tossing them out. So then we can back off on the amount of light they receive. We can pinch the tops. 
and they're growing nice and low, they're not getting leggy and growing really long, and that's a testament to the amount of light that they're receiving, which turns out to be a good amount. So the things I seem to be doing are great, but I have a good mentor on that right now too. Uh, we have a person in our beekeeper association that has over 20 years working with perennials. <clears throat> so I'm thinking maybe we should actually do a YouTube video and uh, get some of that information going. But uh, it works really well so far and I transfer them into other pots. So I am learning as I'm going and I watch videos, watch YouTube like you're doing right now. And uh, I probably should have started them in larger pots, and, you know, transferring them one to another because they germinated really fast. So I was told they wouldn't. I was also told that I needed to stratify them, which is running through a freeze cycle. And uh, I ignored that because I have so many of the seeds. I thought I'll just put them in these Ziploc baggies and see if they start on their own. And they did, like within days, they had the little white tails coming out of the seeds. So there's a lot of fun stuff, but I jumped the gun for sure. Now I've got house plants. So I think I need a greenhouse. I think about that year after year. I would like to have some place where I can get things started even more. And then maybe you could have beehives inside the greenhouse with entrances going through the wall outside and you'd have a south facing wall. And then the greenhouses would house my beehives as well and give me a nice awesome place to start seedlings and it would be a healthy place to be. What are your thoughts on that? <clears throat> the greenhouse discussion comes up from time to time. People want to know could they set up a greenhouse, keep a beehive in it, and let the bees forage the flowers inside the greenhouse. And I say to them, that is not enough. Your bees need access to millions of flowers. They need access to the great outdoors. So that wouldn't probably work very well. Next one comes from Jim in Burlington Falls, New York. Burlington Flats, I'm sorry. Looking at your previous videos during summer and winter, it appears most of your hives are one deep, one medium super, either another super or feed box above. I'm constantly told that the bees will swarm if they don't have room, leading into two deeps, brood boxes, and two larger sugar supers hive arrangements. Can you discuss how and why you're keeping one deep, one super arrangement? <clears throat> I feel like I'm missing something. So I'm glad I went way around the barn on that earlier to talk about my logic behind why I'm keeping my boxes small. And you're right. Uh, one of my number one swarm generators would be the observation hives. Although the irony of that is my smallest observation hive which has 12 um, medium frames in it, doesn't swarm, doesn't swarm at all. So they're weird. Wall-to-wall -wall bees in there, solid. Like sometimes you can't see the frames. <clears throat> they didn't swarm one time, they didn't replace their queen. Now, I have other observation hives that are larger that weren't even half covered with bees. And they swarm, both of them. So, genetics plays in a tendency to swarm as well. And uh, I don't know what to say. We can't apparently stop swarming and we can't predict, although we know statistically the, the triggers for swarming. You know, a really crowded colony of bees. 
So a really crowded hive is a trigger for swarming. Um, when they start to backfill with honey and they start running out of space, that's a trigger for swarming too. When they have a lack of ventilation, that can be a trigger for swarming. And it's a combination of all of these things. And then of course, the genetics and uh, time of year and what the resources are outside and what the health of the queen is because sometimes there's a supersedure, which is due to queen health. So that's a swarm um, because the queen's failing. Or sometimes there's no swarm. There's just the loss of a queen and you can find her dead laying in front of the hive. And then they'll replace her. So that's actually much better than having them swarm out. Although now we've got the puzzle, what was wrong with that queen? By the way, your queens are marked red this year. Today is National Color Red Day. I guess you're supposed to wear red. I didn't do it, sorry. But I have red lights in the background. <clears throat> so constantly being told that the bees will swarm if they don't have room. So that's true, what's the size of the colony? So it's completely up to you how large you wanna go. And we do want, I do it here too, in the summertime, I'll add a super if they're completely full, wall-to-wall -wall honey. When you pull that inner cover and 8 out of 10 frames or 7 out of 8 frames if it's an 8-frame box, if they're wall-to-wall -wall honey and they're near being capped or they are capped, you should super that hive. That's honey that you can take off, of course, later. <clears throat> but uh, you do need to kind of manage them and expand. So my winter arrangement, you'll notice if you look back at my videos, during the summertime, some of the colonies do have four boxes, but um, I'm trying to hold back on that. I'm trying to let them be small. I'm trying to do what Dr. Seeley suggested, Darwinian beekeeping, uh, which means, you know, you are swarm generating. And a healthy colony of bees probably in the wild kicks out at least one or two swarms a year. But if you're doing that in your backyard, depending on where your backyard is, it might not be a great way to go. It's certainly not going to leave you with a big surplus of honey. So again, are you keeping bees just because it's a lot of fun and you like to study them and you want to sit around and stare at them and talk about them and do the things that I do? Or are you keeping bees because you're hoping to get a bunch of honey off of them and make these bees earn their keep? And there's nothing wrong with doing that too. But if you're trying to become a sideliner, and make a profit from your bees or get them to pay for themselves. Then you will be adding supers as they're building up weight and filling space inside the hive ahead of that. So that they don't swarm because a swarm means the numbers come down and all the things that I've already described. But you'll have to be more actively managing your colonies that get much larger like that. The varroa counts and all of the other things are compounded with the larger colonies of bees. So they're just things to think about, and there's no one answer for it. So, but that's what I do. <clears throat> now, flip side of that, do I have any large colonies? I do. The horizontal hives are big. The colonies are full. There's lots of bees in there, to the point where it's a little concerning, because I don't... You couldn't condense them. I had my grandsons out there with me. They're all suited up. I have bee suits for toddlers on up because I have a granddaughter now who's turning one this weekend. So I have to go to a birthday party tomorrow. I know, it's really sad. But 
here's the thing. When I took them out, we were going to teach about condensing the hive. We're going to pull a bunch of honey off and uh, because it has a lot of frames in it, they were, they had way more honey than they needed, but the colony was huge. There were bees in every frame. So we didn't have the normal, you know, two or three top frames in the middle of the afternoon, which most of the bees should have been out. Well, if most of the bees were out, we're in a double whammy there because it was full of bees. That's the long Langstroth hive, by the way. It's not even the lands. And uh, they put away a lot of honey. So we couldn't condense them down. So I've got these big colonies, which I know are going to be a problem for me in spring. And by that, I mean too many bees. So what other beekeepers consider to be a problem would be losses and deaths and dead outs and things like that. For me, my problem is I set out to keep 10 colonies of bees. We have 23 colonies of bees, which on the flip side didn't bother me that much because now I have more statistics, like I could do more configuration comparisons and things like that, the more colonies that you have. But uh, the horizontal hives, the lands hives, heavily populated the lands, the long lang, those are going to be my troublemakers because their numbers are big. <clears throat> and if the thermal scans are any indicator, we're in a pickle right there with them. So it's a matter of what you want to deal with. So when you feel like you're missing something, as Jim says, uh, I'm trying to keep my colonies small. I, I like to see the swarm dynamic. I like to see the bees preparing to swarm. I like all of the indicators. Keep in mind, I'm taking pictures, I'm making videos, I'm documenting that. Uh, if they never swarmed, I would be bored to death because now I can't study swarm dynamics. I would not have learned the things I know about how faithful bees are and things like that to their queen. Turns out they're not. And one of the ways to find that out is by manipulating swarms and things like that, seeing what the scouts are doing interrupting their social influencers when they come back to give their waggle dances and stuff like that. These are the things I want to know and learn about. So for me, a colony that cycles through swarming, that has swarming cycles through the year, benefits what I'm doing. How am I going to test out, you know, a bee vacuum if I don't have a swarm to collect? So <clears throat> my motivations are very different. I don't want a room full of stored honey I have a big electric extractor and things like that. But that's um, something I have to do because I have a bunch of surplus honey, even though I didn't want it. So it seems like reverse psychology works on beekeeping. Like the more you don't want more bees, you'll get more bees. The more you don't want honey, you're going to get a bunch of it. And a cut comb and things like that. So we have to assess all of that this year. If I didn't expand the hives and put Ross rounds on and things like that, or just have foundationless frames so I can make cut comb. I wouldn't be able to do any of that if I didn't add supers beyond the single deep and the two mediums, for example. So this is all a personal preference. You can basically build your bees and your colonies as big as they can go, or you can set up and kind of imitate the size of the spaces they normally occupy statistically. So there's not, there will always be someone that says, oh, well, I found bees in a space that was gigantic. Or then you could be like um, Texas Bee Works and find a whole colony of bees in a birdhouse. So they fill cavities of all sizes, but statistics are developed that let you know that they select and have a preference for 10 gallons.
So that's where I kind of arrived at mine. <clears throat> Keep in mind too, I don't use queen excluders and things like that at all because they consistently store their honey and their capped honey frames and everything else up above and the broods down below. And by the time we're mid-season, we don't have a bunch of mixing of brood and everything. And so I don't use queen excluders at all, but I'm not into production. I don't need to come out with a truck and load up a whole bunch of them and send them to a big honey house and go through mass batch processing of honey. Uh, we do it in my garage in a corner with my grandsons and it's easy to do. But uh, so this is, there's, there are reasons behind why people keep what they do. I don't think there's a real totally hands-off approach but for those beekeepers who are considering keeping bees that want the least amount of interaction with their bees, then I send all of those people to Dr. Leo Sharashkin's HorizontalHive.com. And because he has a very hands-on holistic approach to beekeeping. But uh, that's why I hybridize kind of what Dr. Leo does. I hybridize kind of what uh, Dr. Thomas Seeley suggests that we do in Dar Darwinian beekeeping. Um, and uh, you have to, in my opinion, monitor disease in Varroa. You really, um, based on what I would tell people if I had mentors, if I were your mentor and you're my mentee, uh, Dr. Leo would say, look at your hives twice a year, spring and fall, leave them to themselves in between. And uh, so I want to get more inspections than that. But again, I have ulterior motives. I need to know what the Varroa levels are. I want to document what's going on with those hives. I want to um, head off potential problems. I don't want there to be a Varroa farm going on in a, in a colony that's in decline that's lost their queen. We do regular daily landing board inspections. And you can tell a lot by that. So... In theory, you could look at landing boards and know whether that colony needs your attention or not, but it would not tell you on the landing board alone if they're full of honey and need more space, for example. It does let you know if there's a laying queen in there and that that colony is in full brood production. <clears throat> so it deals with the quantity of the pollen that's crossing that uh, entrance. So there's a lot you can do, there's a lot you can learn, and that's the problem. And that's the good and the bad of beekeeping. There's no one way to be. So there's, it's all about what you want to get out of it, why you're keeping bees, and uh, how much involvement there's going to be. <clears throat> but one deep and one super, that's what they have for winter. Beyond that one deep and one medium, uh, anything above that is what I take off during the year. And you can take that off during the year. You don't have to wait till the end of the year because they have their deep box with their brood and resources and then they've got the medium super full. And so that's their insurance policy already for the end of the year. And that way, if you had a terrible rest of the year, you just would never super it and wouldn't take anything else off. Although if they continue to build through the year, we super that up and then we pull those mediums off at the end of September. So... And the beauty of it is too, aside from the fact that there are no straight, solid answers for every question in beekeeping, um, it changes through the years, even with the seasons and climate shift and everything else that's going on. So the curveballs keep coming and you're just going to have to keep adapting depending on why you want to keep bees and how you want to keep them and what you expect from them. 
Question number five. Don't worry. I know this is going long, but question number five is the last question of the day. So thanks for bearing with me. This comes from Rick in Portland, Oregon. I follow your recommendations for hive configurations. So here again, we're talking about hive configurations. The R10 lid, no top vent, slatted rack, or solid bottom board. This spring, all of my hives are showing wet bottom boards. My bottom boards are not going to last very long this wet, and I am concerned about the bees' health. Is this a concern, or can this moisture be better managed? So there's a whole bunch of information missing from <clears throat> this question from Rick. How many boxes do we have? You know, what's the history of the hive? The bottom boards, though, I will talk about. So bottom boards, which bottom boards perform the best? Okay, so uh, we have solid bottom boards, we have screened bottom boards, we have screened bottom boards or considered screened bottom boards, which are the flow hive bottoms. They're aluminum, like an aluminum grid. And it's like sheet metal aluminum with cutouts in it. And uh, the screened bottom boards and the aluminum bottom boards that have a cavity underneath where you can insert a tray and where you can remove that tray and it's still enclosed with wood is my preferred all-time bottom board. If you want to see what that looks like, you go to my website, as I mentioned before, thewaytobe.org, and you look at the print page. And if you look at Fred's Langstroth Hive Preferred Configuration, I prefer that you have a screened or a bottom board of some kind that moisture can pass through that you can collect in trays. Also that varroa destructor mites and things like that fall through the screen and you can collect those too because a percentage of those mites, I know that people will say, here's the problem, <laughs> here's the problem with beekeeping. And by the way, we get along uh, with beekeepers with one another that have totally different approaches to beekeeping and that's great. You actually want to be in fellowship with people that keep bees in a different way than you do. I understand like-minded people, let's all do the same thing. But I rather like the information that's coming from people that are doing it differently, just in case I might want to make some change to how I'm keeping my bees. But I'm going to talk about a few things here. <clears throat> the screen bottom boards give us a lot of control. It also lets us pull out a tray, even in the middle of winter, uh, to see kind of what's going on in that hive and see if there's moisture coming down there. Moisture coming down the sidewalls is not a problem for me. Uh, in fact, I was just writing to the guy that illustrates, uh, does my drawings for me, and uh, talking about these bottom boards on the nucleus hives that are all one piece, they're solid. And so the bottom is fixed on it. So even if you tip that forward, uh, I mentioned in that I'm glad that those were not glued onto the bottom because there is moisture leaching out the front. There's no escape route for the moisture in those solid bottom boards where the entrance is further up. And this is a nucleus box, so this is not what we're talking about when we're talking about the main Langstroth style. Uh, because it's self-contained, uh, moisture could pool in there, but the entrance is up above. So that's why my preferred nucleus hive has an additional box underneath, has a screen in the bottom of it, and will have a little tray that you can pull out. 
And that's because uh, Dr. Jamie Ellis also down at uh, University of Florida uh, said in one of his presentations, there's a 15% varroa destructor mite drop just by having screened bottom boards and a cavity beneath it where the mites don't get back up into your hive. Now, I don't know about that percentage. I don't know if there's a published study about it, but it's enough for me. If 10 of them die in there, that's an advantage. Because the advantage to a screen bottom board that's enclosed, keep in mind I'm staying enclosed because I don't like the screen bottom boards that are just open to the ground underneath. The bees don't care for that. They can't control their venting and air circulation in the hive when it's not closed like that. I still want a single entrance. But uh, I like the idea of having a cavity that collects things underneath that I can pull that out. Now in the winter time you can pull it and see if there's moisture, see if there's condensation in there and you take notes. Different colonies produce moisture at different levels based on the size of the cavity, the number of bees that are inside. More bees are actually respirating moisture into the air. But likewise in that winter cluster, the bees are in the center of it need that moisture so bad they're migrating out and getting it from the outer mantle of your cluster in wintertime and they're coming in. And then beyond them, the cold surfaces in your hive are getting condensation on them. And where we can see it, it forms at the cluster base. So here's your cluster. Uh, the condensation forms a rim on the wall, on the bulkhead of your hive inside. And then eventually, especially on these warmer days, it drips down the sidewalls. Where is it not forming? Since we've had the insulated inner covers on, the condensation does not form above the bees, plus the configuration of that cover by Bee Smart Designs um, is contoured. So the driplets run to the sides, where if it was flat the old wooden inner cover flat when condensation built on that it just dripped back down onto your hive even when you slightly tipped it towards the landing board condensation formed in that and it didn't do its thing and run down and down the front it just dripped straight down so the insulation makes all the difference when it comes to where the condensation forms whether or not they're able to retain a heat capsule up there. That's why there's no top entrance, no top venting, because if we did that, that hot air that forms up there, that pushes that dew point down the sidewalls, uh, would disappear when the moist air runs out of the hive. So the information is not here from Rick's question. There is an R10 lid. Good news. Condensation to the sidewalls, not on the bees. So that works for me. No top vent, good, that works for me too, because at the top vent is where the condensation would form. That's where cold air meets warm air and the dew point gets achieved. So without that, and there's a slatted rack, which gives them more distance. So now we're gonna talk about the, the solid bottom board though and how long it's going to last. I'm not gonna name companies, but there's a really big bee supply company that I bought a bunch of bottom boards from. Solid bottom boards, guess what they all were? Every single one of them is plywood. They're not aging well, they delaminate. So why they chose plywood, I don't know. That's very annoying. Uh, I will name the company that I bought my other solid bottom boards from, and that was Better B in New York. And I got a bunch of cedar bottom boards. Now, do I leave them just plain cedar? This is what I wanna to get to, because the concern here is how long will these bottom boards last if they're getting moist all the time? Well, we know moisture and wood are not good bedfellows, right? But we also know that your bees propolize surfaces during the year. The other thing is I dip all of my bottom boards in uh, eco wood. 
Oh good, I have one. So if we look at this bottom board, this is my, if you're getting just a solid bottom board without screening, this is it. It's a solid bottom board. Look at the color of it. This is finished with eco wood. Now eco wood does, does some things and does not do others. Guess what one of the things it does do? Keeps your wood from rotting. Uh, your wood can still bend and warp and, and crack and split if it's exposed to weather and things like that. But I found that uh, for a bottom board treatment, because eco wood, I'm gonna make a note too, because I know somebody's gonna say, where do you get it? You get it at Home Depot, anywhere building supplies are. But eco wood, it seems like nothing. It's like mineral water and you mix it up, you get a little package that's this big and makes over five gallons of finished eco wood. And then I mix it up in a big tote and I run bottom boards, inner covers, everything goes through that because once it's dry and set, it's totally safe for your bees. And uh, I've been doing beekeeping since 2006. I have all of my original equipment. Uh, the boxes have been chewed and damaged, but I've not lost a single bottom board due to rot, except the newer ones that were plywood that they haven't failed, but you can actually push on it like it flexes. That's how bad that was. The company, I will not name. But uh, they did not help us by making it out of plywood, and even people come and look and go, why are your landing boards made out of plywood? That's because that's where they came from that place. So solid wood bottom boards, if treated with eco wood, will be fine. Plus they make cedar bottom boards that were sold at Better Bee. So I got a bunch of them. And then I put the word out later because I'm selfish a little bit. And I want to make sure I have the ones I need before I tell other people where to get them because then they get them and now they're out of stock and then I don't get them. So I can put a link to that if you want, but Better Bee's easy to find. And eco wood is easy to find. And uh, so I don't think based on this description that the bees are in trouble because, and it's, they're not all the same. This is, this is what's interesting. Even configured the same, I see moisture coming out the leading edge. They're all tilted the same way towards the landing boards. Uh, the landing boards that face north hold moisture longer the landing boards that face south in winter, any time of year actually, but in wintertime is when it's prominent because they're not getting out. Uh, they dry quicker, they get more sun, and uh, they tend to be better off. So the solid bottom boards, not a big concern. But if you're picking one right now, you're shopping, your fingers on the button, you're looking at, you know, Daydent or Better Bee or Man Lake or whoever you're looking at, um, when you're shopping, see if they've got those enclosed bottom boards. They're heavy duty, they're expensive because there's a screen on top, there's a tray that slides in, and the bottom board is solid. And then you can pull your tray out, you close them up, you have total control. I like those the best, but I still use regular solid bottom boards too. I'm just saying, if money were no object, I would get enclosed bottom boards. And that's also, so that's why we put those in my prints. That's why they're gonna be on the nucleus hives. Moisture management, that's it. We don't want to get moisture out of your hive, by the way. We just don't want it to land on the bees because they're desperate for moisture, um, especially in winter. 
just like people, if you're not drinking enough water, you're prone to hypothermia. So that's a survival thing. Your bees need moisture. Everything needs water to happen inside the hive, including metabolizing even honey that's stored. So removing it completely and creating a completely dry interior environment is not, number one, what the bees would have in the wild. Uh, and they'd need then to forage for water. If you see bees flying out on these warmer days, and I just recently collected bees from the snow because I was photographing them, if they're flying out landing in snow and the first thing they do is their tongue's out and they're trying to lick the melting snow, that bee is desperate for water. We need condensation inside the hive. We need that moisture. We just don't need or want it, nor do the bees, above the bees. Sidewalls, yes. Above the bees, no. And so, yeah, and then treat your boards, your landing boards, your bottom boards with the eco wood is what I recommend, of course. You can paint your bottom boards. You can use an acrylic latex or something like that. But you're gonna find if you leave it just plain wood, if you use something like cedar, or if you get pine and then you finish that with eco wood or something like that, you'll find that over the years, as your equipment gets old, every little crevice, every little inch of where the, the boards come together, they'll be propolizing it, which is good, good for your bees. And uh, you want it, you don't want to get rid of that. So that's it for today. I hope that we covered some good information. Um, I will post links, of course, to the lighting that I'm using, but keep in mind when I'm growing these plants that this is my first year doing uh, indoor in winter, and I did start too early. So what I'll end up having to do is pinch off the tops of the, the plants. It's like, that's what I was told I could do to keep them kind of dwarf. So we're gonna bonsai those plants. And uh, people that are more advanced at that than I am are starting their plants indoors and then they can actually uh, force the plants into dormancy when they get so big because these are perennials. These are plants that are designed to go year after year. Uh, and then they'll bank them and put them in cool storage. And then in spring, they'll take them straight out, but that lets them grow even more. So my system is limited to 80 plants at a time because uh, I don't have greenhouse because I don't have all that cool stuff that other people have. But uh, I did it for fun, and because the plants were doing so well, now I'm stuck. I have all these big, my pots are the four-inch diameter pots, you know, so they're out of control. And uh, that's it. That's it for today. So if you have a question yourself that you'd like to have considered, please go to thewaytobe.org and click on the Way to Be page. There's a form that you can fill out right there. If you want to go to a fellowship and talk to beekeepers day or night from all over the world and you're not afraid of Facebook, I know a lot of people are anti-Facebook these days. Search for groups on Facebook, Facebook group, The Way to Be. And then answer a couple questions, say where you heard about it, and you're in. You can talk beekeeping with people all over the place. The moderators are super friendly. And uh, you're going to find out there's no bullying in there. It's a great place to learn and share. And uh, whenever you're bored, just log in and talk about bees. I personally am almost never there. That's because I'm super busy, but I'm very glad to provide that Facebook group, that page, so that you can share about bees, get questions answered anytime those questions cross your mind. Thanks for being here. I hope that you have a fantastic weekend ahead and that wherever you are, 
the weather isn't ruining your bee yard. I know we have weird storm systems going through and we're not getting the worst of it here. So I know that some people are really in it. So let us know how are you making it? How, what are you doing with your bees? What are you seeing in this heavy, weird weather that we have going on? So I hope you enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks for spending part of your Friday here with me.